Welcome everybody to Aerospace Live. Um, I'm hoping you're all having a great day today. Now for tonight, we have a truly special guest. And to be honest, this, this really might be the most important guest I've ever had on. I think that she's gonna be a little surprised to hear that, uh, but I really do think it's true. So our guest tonight, you know, she's not a pilot. She's not an astronaut. She doesn't work at the FAA. Um, she's a wife and she's a mom. And so why is that important? And why is, that, why is it so important that I think a wife and mom, as important as they all are to us, why do I think that this individual might be the most important person I've had on the show so far? She's a military wife and she's a military mom. Um, her husband was a fighter bomber pilot during Vietnam. Um, he was shot down. He had to eject a couple times, I believe. Uh, and she spent her life as a military wife, military mom. She has her own career behind her, but that's not our story today. And her story is really important for many of our service members and their spouses. Um, which is why I'm asked her to come on and she's been so grateful to spend her time with us. Um, now, I do want to ask you to do something. If you know anyone in the military or a spouse or someone who might be going into the military, I want you to share this with them. I make no money from any of these shows. These shows aren't monetized. There's no ads. If I get one person who watches a show or I get a million people who watch the show, it has nothing to do with me. It has, I want to get her story out. I think it's really important for those military moms and the wives and the spouses in general. There's a lot of women in the military nowadays. Okay, with that, uh, let's waste no more time. Let's get to our host today. And in addition to everything I said, uh, Sarah Jane is also an author. She has written this book here, if you're watching on YouTube, called My Pilot. Let's welcome Sarah Jane Geary. Hey, Sarah Jane, how are you doing? Yeah, thank you. Oh, I'm fine tonight. I'm looking forward to this. Fantastic. Well, we're really happy to have you on with us tonight. Um, I, I wanted to start off uh, letting the readers know, or not readers, letting the listeners know and the watchers know. Um, I saw your book and it's not typically the type of book that I would typically read. I'll be honest with you. I, I typically am one of these geeky pilot guys. Um, you know, I want the flight manuals. I want uh, the technical stories. Um, I don't usually get into the emotional type books. Um, I also, not to embarrass myself in front of everybody, I don't typically cry very easy uh, when it comes to, unless it's a Disney movie, because they carry, you know, they kill all the parents in the Disney movies. But um, but when I'm reading a book, I usually don't get too emotional. Um, I had, I finished your book the other day and I had to hide my face from uh, my children uh, because I did have a tear in it. Um, and so with that, I'm talking way too much and I know the folks want to listen to you, but I wanted to give them a little introduction. And again, uh, for the folks that are online um, and listen, if you're listening to this in a podcast, Put your phone in your pocket. I want you to hear this whole thing. Um, if you're watching online, I want you to look down below in the description and I want you to find um, this, uh, this book on Amazon. And uh, you know, if you have a military spouse or if you know somebody who's a military spouse, uh, Christmas is coming up, this would be a great present for them. This is really a fantastic book. With that, I'm gonna stop talking. <laughs> Otherwise I'll talk all night. Um, so Sarah Jane, um, you know, usually I start with, uh, you know, how did you get started in flying? and that's not the case here. So let me ask you this question. So where did you and your husband, first of all, um, for those that don't know your husband, because your husband actually was kind of a big name in the military. So um, who was your husband? Well, his name was Bernard Dietrich Geary. And uh, in the Air Force, they called him Ben. Uh, with a name like Bernard, you get a lot of nicknames. He's been called Barnyard, Ben. Uh, in Vietnam, Ben was his name, but uh, Bernie is what we call him. Now, how did you... Geary. How did you meet Bernie? I uh, met him when we were students at Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And he came from uh, Chicago and I was from St. Louis. And um, we met there. He was, uh, 
uh, ahead of me, half a year ahead of me. And um, we fell in love. So it was as easy as that. Uh, and then we, we fell so much in love, we wanted to get married because there were a lot of students there that were married. Um, and so I told my mother and she said, well, how are you gonna support yourselves? You're in school. I said, well, yeah, you got a point there. So I went home, Bernie was still in school. I went home and stayed with my parents and got a job at the telephone company. And I saved every penny. I made about 62.50 a week. And then the next fall we got married and we lived up on near the campus for half a, you know, a semester, graduated in January. And then four months later, we were off to pilot training. So, wow. so when you, so you married him, you knew he was going to be a military pilot and you, you knew kind of what you were getting yourself into. Uh, yeah, I, he was in ROTC and in those days, uh, it was a Presbyterian land grant college, liberal arts, and all the guys had to be in ROTC for two years. All right. It was required. So he was in there and he loved it. Uh, wow. He wanted to stay in there. And if you stayed and passed, you would uh, get a commission on graduation and you serve five years in the Air Force. It was Air Force ROTC. So that's what he decided to do. He loved it. He ended up the colonel of the ROTC students. I mean, the commander. And uh, he learned to fly at the little airport there. And it was five years uh, ahead of us. We were getting what we thought was a good salary. <laughs> he was. And um, so that's how we met at school. Now, now when um, he joined ROTC, had the Vietnam War already started? No, this was in 19... Uh, Let's see, 1957, eight. Okay, all right. So, so that was prior to. Um, so he started his aviation career in the military prior to Vietnam. Yeah. Um, now, what, um, what type of airplane did uh, he fly? Well, in school, he flew a tri-pacer. Oh, cool. Uh, and they took five of the fellows, I think they were seniors then. And the deal was, why send a, a guy to flight school and have the Air Force move you and pay for it for a year and you flunk out. Mm. Some people love the air, some people don't. So there were five fellows and he and um, uh, his roommate were the only two that came out of it. One fella got sick, one fella hated it. So the two of them walked away with the um, second lieutenant bar and their little flight license. So when they got to the Air Force flight school, they learned how to fly the jets. So very cool. And then um, later on, I believe in Vietnam, um, he was flying F4s, correct? Flying the Phantom F4, yeah. F4B and then F4C. Okay. Mm -hmm. A good military wife. You actually knew the difference between the B's and the C's. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah, well, I'm from St. Louis and it was made at McDonald Aircraft. It was called then. Oh, and that's they cool. they were making the F4s. It was the hottest plane around. In fact, uh, he used to go up um, before he went to Vietnam. They fly him up commercially from McDill Air Force uh, Base, and he'd get the plane right off the assembly line and bring it back. Oh, that's cool. That so. now, now, the first time that um, this kind of goes into the military wife, and you guys were married at the beginning of this, so, um, yeah. so, so as a military wife, what type of support, now the war hadn't started yet, but um, 
but was Bernard was did he um did he have to travel even at the beginning? Was he away from you um even at the beginning, even before the war started? Oh yeah. He spent uh well, they were always going away for something. And you could volunteer for things. So he volunteered for parachute uh Fort Benning to learn to get his flight wings parachute. And he volunteered for FAC forward air controller training. Um, and then they would go on these uh, cross countries to do certain things with planes out in Nevada or whatever. They'd play set up war games, I call it. Mm -hmm. And then he was in Okinawa in 64 um, for three months. And it was the first group of F4s to fly from, from Tampa all the way to Okinawa and it set a big record. So it was a new thing. It was exciting for him. Now, when he was away, you know, being a young military wife, you were probably, you know, if you were just out of college, I mean, you were probably 21, 22 years old, probably around that age, right? Yeah, just, well, yeah, I was a little older. I was, uh, I think when Lisa was born, I was 23. She was born in 63. Okay. Now, how did you, um, now, yes, now you're, you're a, a young, you're a young lady yourself. Um, you know, you've got a young child. What were some of the things that you did? And this is actually why I think it's important to have this conversation. So what were some of the things that you did that, that tried to help, um, when your husband was away? Uh, to try to help. Can you explain that? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Yourself really. So, so what were some of the things you did to help? Like, you know, if, you know, you were worried about him when he was away or, um, you know, just to kind of keep in right. contact with him, um, keep close with him. Um, you see a lot of military spouses and uh, relationships that don't make it right. And that was, um, you know, because of their, their, their apart. Um, and for whatever reason, it doesn't work, you know, and that's one of the reasons why, and, and, and I'll tell you and the folks that are listening, um, the biggest thing I got when I was, uh, you know, when I was reading your book here, um, was just you guys, at least the way it sounded in the book, you guys never lost that spark for each other. Um, and so that was really touching. And so if, if, if somebody was new, um, if they, their spouse was going in the military, let's say they might be going to Afghanistan or, you know, whatever, you know, overseas place, they might be going for say six months, a year, a couple of years. Um, what would be some of your recommendations to them for how, how to handle that? Well, I think I, I would always joke with, uh, after we got out of the service and we were in civilian life, people would say, well, how could you do that when your husband was away and all of a sudden you had a baby and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And we kept in touch. Um, and that's one advi uh, advice. My, my son, my late son who passed away this year, he was in Iraq and Kuwait. They had email I, and they had their cell phones. I didn't have any of that. We had letters and we got hooked up surreptitiously by a phone operator in California. We got to speak, but it was rare. And it was also that kind of uh, shortwave radio where you talk and then they talk and then it goes click, click. But we did, and uh, some of the wives would make tapes. They had the old fashioned tape deck and they would make tapes of themselves with the kids and everything. And they would send it to Vietnam and they could watch it over there. But I think the letters were important and um, you know, hearing his voice was wonderful. But, uh, yeah, two uh, stories I had. I don't want to spoil anything for the listeners. 
Um, you had, you know, one thing you inside your book, I don't think this is spoiling. You have a lot of those snippets of those letters that your husband sent you. Um, did you keep most of them or? I kept them all. Wow. Uh, and I kept the uh, letters that I wrote him when I was at home working and he was still in school. Uh, from that, from that time that we parted and had that year apart, I kept all of our letters and I had my letters too. Mm-hmm. For the Vietnam uh, time in Okinawa, I didn't have my letters. I just had his letters. So I, I did save them. And uh, so, and I would reread them all the time. So. Yeah. So just that, con- just that communication, um, you know, I think that's something that people take for granted nowadays because we just were surrounded by satellites and video conferencing. And, um, you know, we had nothing like that, um, you know, back then. So, you know, getting a letter was kind of a big deal. Um, you know, know, it was, uh, it wasn't just a talent. It was something that a lot of them felt compelled to do to keep up the contact. Uh, there was one couple I mentioned in the book who they never wrote to each other much. We really liked them. They were lovely people. But for them, it was okay. Mm-hmm. But I had to have that letter in my pocket of my robe, or I had to feel close. And I think he felt the same way. They told him to burn my letters because uh, the people that worked at this base that was built in sand in Cameron Bay, the women that came in and did the laundry and everything, the local people, uh, they didn't want to see return addresses sitting around. I don't know why, but it was. Maybe they could sell the letter and whatever, but so he didn't save my letters, but I have all his. So, wow. yeah, no, I thought that was touching. You know, and the other, the other, um, the item was, um, the telephone operator. Um, oh, Pratt, yeah. Yeah. Can you say uh, you, you dropped out just a quick second. What was her name? Bert Pratt. Bert Pratt. Um, now, she, now she actually ran a clandestine and I, I, I want people to read this in your book for more information, but it sounded like she was running a clandestine after hours connection um, to be able to get the uh, the folks that are overseas and their spouses together. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How, how did that get started? How did you find out that connection was available? I had no idea. And he left in September. And then I went up to his parents' home in Chicago, right in the city, for Christmas with my daughter. And she was about two. And uh, one night I was alone in the back porch. Uh, it was a cold porch. And my mother-in-law was very German and she kept all of her cookie tins and things on this cold porch. And the phone rang and it was, uh, hi, honey, it's me. <laughs> and I just, I just fell apart. I couldn't believe it. Um, and she hooked us up at that time and we had a conversation, but I could hardly get out the words. It was terrible. Uh, that's when I found out about it. And that was a, a December. And so um, occasionally she would call again, but the guys would line up. And I think, it, and I'm, I'm not sure it's clandestine, but I don't think she was supposed to do it because we, we heard rumors about her throughout Bernard's tour that, well, maybe she was reprimanded for it because it was like a short wave type thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but she was actually our lifeline. It was wonderful. Yeah, I don't even remember that from the book. So the first time she called you, you didn't even know the call was coming. So that was a complete surprise. No, I had no idea. I thought I would never hear his voice ever again because I wasn't one of the mothers that did tapes. Um, 
And I was on a tape with Sandy. She did both of us and the kids. But Jim, his friend Jim was a real techie and he had all the tapes and everything. But Bernie, that, that in, did not interest us to go that way. We wrote letters and occasionally talked on the phone. So Now, when, um, when was your husband away the birth of your first child, Lisa? No, he, he was there. He was uh, in Tampa. Mm -hmm. His oh, good. parents, his mother had come down. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's good. That's good. Um, how about your son? Was he, um, was he there for the birth of your son? No, he was in Vietnam. Paul was born when he was in Vietnam. There were four of us wives pregnant when they left. Mm -hmm. And um, he was born May 21st. And then Bernard came back in September. So he was about four months old. Now, going into the years of Vietnam, because um, there was a couple of things I, I, I found really fascinating and, and pretty emotional. Um, first of all, you know, anybody can get hurt in a training accident. You know, there was a, there was a situation in the talk about in the book and one of the helicopters that had crashed. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. Cause I wanted to, I want to talk to you about, um, you know, meeting with the, the wives, um, of the, of the, of the pilots. But, um, when you had, when Vietnam had started, it seems like the wives got closer together. Um, and they, was that, was that true? Were you guys really kind of a support system for each other? Yes, we were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, the first Thanksgiving, when he was away, Thanksgiving, we, we got a big room at the officers club and all the wives came with all their kids. And I'd never seen that before. It was, it was great. But we didn't do it all the time, but we kind of took, helped each other out and did social. We played cards and did volunteer work together. And uh, yeah, it was, it was quite wonderful. Um, Bernie was in the triple nickel when he first went to Tampa. And then when he went to Vietnam, they moved, they split it and, and he became a member of the 557th. And uh, so therefore when he left, I only knew these wives of the new squadron for a couple of months. So that was kind of a new support system for me. And it was fine. And some of the wives went home for the year, uh, but I decided to stay there. So. And for the folks listening, the, the, the triple five, the triple, uh, the triple nickel was the, the 555th, um, which was a fighter wing, correct? Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, long history. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And anybody who's interested in aviation, uh, you can look up the 555th, the triple nickel. Um, some good stories around that group. Um, so now when you, you had, let's say you were in one of the, the wives, um, you know, the groups at the, at the base. If, if, if you had a brand new, because you probably had new people coming in all the time, right? So um, if you had a new wife coming in, did you guys reach out to that new wife? Or how did how did the new person, like if somebody, it's probably different today, um, but back uh, back during Vietnam, how did you guys reach out to the new, um, the new spouses? Well, during the Vietnam time, there were no new spouses because they'd been together and they went over as a group. Okay. And there was no replacements coming through as far as I knew, because uh, there was nobody that walked in there about the group. But before that, in the triple nickel, uh, we had coffees all the time. And uh, I would have a coffee at my house and there might be 30 women there. And uh, a couple of us would make the goodies and I'd make coffee and tea and we'd all, we all chit chat together and, and introduce ourselves to each other if we didn't know, most of the time. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it was really a, 
get, and then when tragedies happen, like um, Kaz Musgrove was killed, um, mm. the first, even before Bernard went, he was from Tampa from the Air Force Base, but he went over the year before. And I saw what happened when a pilot died like that and everybody came together. And it was uh, awesome, really. Scary mm. for me, but. Yeah, so I hope I, you know. I hope that folks today. I know, I know. You know, it's, you know, the years go by, right? But a lot of times, the same things that were beneficial in the past are beneficial today. So um, I do hope that anybody, uh, any spouses from military, uh, either current or in the future, I do hope that they reach out to groups like that. Um, I, I have to imagine that that group made the whole situation, which was probably extremely tough at times, it made it just that little bit easier. Oh, it was a lot easier, right. And we wanted to make it as normal as possible because of our children. Um, and we came together on, on one Easter and the, the uh, squadron commander's wife, I think she had four or five children. And I was just, oh my gosh, how do you do that? I was pregnant with uh, Paul, my second child. And we just couldn't get over it. She was so great. And the older kids helped the younger kids. And I, I, I still have pictures of that. That was a lot of fun. And, and the kids enjoyed getting to know other kids because um, mine were not in school. My daughter was in nursery school maybe, but not. So yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And, uh, and a lot of the wives went home on Christmas. I did, uh, went to my in-laws house and uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was really wonderful to be part of a community. And we had family services. We would help out in family services. So when a new uh, person came to the base, uh, if they were enlisted especially, everything was so new that in family services, we would donate things and we would help them out. Mm. It was like a giant thrift shop. Here you are. What do you need? We're here for you. And that was across the grades, the military grades. It was great. That's nice. That's not just the officers that was no, enlisted. No. That was everybody. Right. That's really nice. Um, yeah. So I hope, I hope that folks that, uh, you know, hear your voice, you know, possibly read your book. That that's one of the things they get out of it. Um, you know, if they're going to be going into that situation is to make sure that they build that social, um, that social circle around them, for that support. Um, they're not, they're not there alone. Um, they shouldn't feel like they're there alone and um, it can really help them. Um, so, you know, one of the, uh, the, one of the unfortunate things that happened, obviously the Vietnam war, um, you know, not, not everybody came home. Right. So, um, and you, um, your husband, um, you know, other members of, you know, his squadron, you know, the, the, not the duty, right. Nobody told them, told you guys to do it, but you guys, you know, you have good hearts, right. So you wanted to make sure that if somebody found out, um, you know, some really bad news that you were there to support them. Um, first of all, you know, thank you for doing that. Um, just as a human being, but you know, how did you summon the courage, you know, to do that? Well, I've often wondered about that. Um, well, I'm, I'm a Christian and I have deep faith and I, I think that my steps were being, directed. I think it was the Holy Spirit that came over me. And my mother had died in 65, um, right before Bernard went to Vietnam. And I weathered that funeral and I learned from it. 
And um, I learned from the older officers' wives who had gone through many funerals. Um, and I, there's strength in numbers, I think, because uh, you always wonder if, if it's gonna happen to you, you would want somebody near you like you would like to be with someone else mm -hmm. and help them. It's a, a mutual society. For those wives that never fit in as an officer's wife, um, their marriage didn't really last past Vietnam, the ones I knew. And you know, it's, it's better to just go with the flow and be part of the community than fight it. You can't really. And part of it is a sadness. It's just part of life. But when you're struck down so young, it's, it's tragic. Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, this is going to be unfair for the people on the podcast, and it's totally uh, going a different direction. But I just noticed your, um, your necklace. I really like that necklace. She has an a airplane on her necklace. That is, that's really pretty. I like that. Um, when my husband died seven years ago, my, my oldest granddaughter bought them for the women uh, in the family. So I wear it every day. And last year it was so worn out and awful. It, was, it wasn't an expensive thing. I had it reproduced in silver. Hmm. And then I had a diamond chip put in the cockpit. Oh. And I told the guy, I said, well, Bernie was a gem, so I'm gonna put a little diamond there. So that's what I wear. Oh, that was nice. Yeah. Um, moving, moving past Vietnam. Um, so, well, actually right at the end of the Vietnam, um, for your husband, um, he was shot down, um, if I remember correctly. Right. Mm -hmm. And he had to eject and he was pulled out by a helicopter, I believe. Right. Um, now he came home right after that, correct? Yes. They were supposed to come home a couple months later, but his, he had made two ejections and his, uh, buddy, his co-pilot made three. So the colonel said, we're not going to risk it again. You guys go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, um, yeah there, there's the unwritten rule, three, you know, three and out. <laughs> if you eject three times, you go home. Right. Um, so so he, he came home, and then um, he did what any pilot would do. He went to go work for the airlines, right? Well, he had to spend another year for his five-year commitment. Okay. And stayed at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa. He was an instructor pilot. And all that time... And that year, he loved the job. He was interviewing with airlines. He got accepted to five major airlines. You knew you had to fly to Kansas City, you had to fly here and there, and you had to take uh, physical courses, you know, physical exams. Um, so by the time his year was up, he, he accepted Pan Am. It was between Pan Am and TWA. And my sister had been a TWA stewardess, so, but he picked Pan Am and we moved to New York. Now, for some of my younger listeners, because um, I'm with Civil Air Patrol, so we have some some of our cadets are 14, 15, 16, 17, some ROTC kids, just like how your husband was when he was in college. Um, and so a lot of them probably don't know what TWA and Pan Am are. Um, so, okay. so, uh, so Pan Am and TWA, for those that don't know, it's basically like Southwest and American Airlines, uh, but they were the two largest. Um, we, we didn't have 400 little airliners, you know, airline companies. Uh, you had these really, these two really big ones. Um, and so, in which, so which uh, company did he go to work for eventually? Pan Am. Pan Am. Um, the one thing that struck me when I was reading the book, because this really kind of ties into current day today, um, because furloughs. of co the furloughs. Yeah. Um, he, he got, a, he got his job and then uh, a little bit while later he got furloughed. Um, so how, we how were, did you guys work uh, on that? We were just taken aback by that. Uh, we just thought, 
that it couldn't happen to a big stable airline like that. How dare it happen? It did three times for him. And then when Pan Am, after the third furlough, which was about 15 years, he was out from the airlines. Um, when Pan Am folded, Delta Airlines stepped in and bought the international planes and the crew. They were dying to fly international. And so Bernie was uh, flying the A310 to Europe. And he, so he went from Pan Am to Delta, which was very lucky and wow. uh, flew with Delta. He would say, I just took off my white hat and put my black hat on. Yeah. Now, one of the ways that he got through that time is he went back into the service, right? Well, his first furlough, he joined the Air National Guard. We were on Long Island and he found out from a friend that the uh, tankers were uh, down at um, McGuire, no, Floyd Bennett Field in New York. And uh, they were looking for uh, Air Force experienced pilots. So he joined the Air National Guard in Brooklyn. And then they, uh, that next year they went out and moved out to West Hampton Beach in the Hamptons. And then they started flying uh, F-102s and he's checked out in that. He, and he flew the tanker for a while that used to refuel him in Vietnam. He was flying it. So they changed missions a lot. So the last mission stayed, it was uh, rescue and recovery. Mm -hmm. And he flew the C-130 and they had helicopters, the HH-3E and the C-130 and the PJs. And that was the very rewarding, very rewarding. They're still doing it. Yeah, a lot of us in Civil Air Patrol were, you know, we're here, you know, to help with that search and rescue mission. Yeah. Um, we don't do it for military type activities, um, but inland U.S. I forget what the what the number is, and I'm sure somebody will correct me down in the in the, the chat. But um, I want to say it's like 80 to 90 percent of the inland Air Force missions for search and rescue um, come to Civil Air Patrol. So that it, I didn't know that. Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, we have the largest single-engine fleet of aircraft um, in the world in Civil Air Patrol. Um, and uh, yeah, and during World War II, we actually uh, started off by patrolling the coast looking for submarines. Um, that, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, they don't let us drop bombs anymore out the windows like they used to. But <laughs> um, at least nobody's ever given me a bomb to drop out. But um, so uh, yeah. So I, when I, I read that he went to the search and rescue um, side of it that had to have been pretty exciting for him. Cause he really went from flying fighter jets where he's in this, you know, relatively right, compared to a C-130 um, relatively small airplane, you know, by himself um, or a two seater. Cause I think he flew a two seater, right? He had a, yeah. he had a wheel in the back. Um, so, you know, he flew a two seater, but um, you know, he gets into this all of a sudden he moves transitions into this really big airplane, um, you know, which also probably try that probably also helped because it kept all his currency up. So, then um, Pan Am eventually came back, right? And they offered him a job again? Uh, he was furloughed three times with Pan Am. And he flew the Boeing 707, and then he was on the Airbus airplanes. Uh, I think he's, I don't know if he flew a 727, but he was always training in something new. Oh, that's cool. And got more computerized as the years went on. So, yeah, it's all computers now. So yeah. you're as much and a computer operator as pilot. It was just very easy. Yeah, and then of course, the helicopters that rescued him and here he was working with the helicopter guys. He really loved it. That's good. That sounds like a, a good, good life to live. Um, yes. uh, exciting life. That's for sure. <laughs> so yeah, it doesn't sound like a desk job would have fit him well. Um, so now when, um, it's also, it's a good story too, for the folks that are today, right? Cause a lot of our folks, especially the younger folks are just graduating from college. They're, 
they might be getting, you know, looking for their first airline job, which is bad timing for them um, because of all the furloughs and the slowdown. But it's going to come back, right? I mean, all these, you know, these these airlines are going to need people again, whether it's next year or the year after. Um, so if, unfortunately, unfortunately, furloughs are part of that 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 business, right? I mean, you had to deal with it for three times and 15 years in between um, two of the furloughs. Yeah, but a year, less than a year apart on some. But you know what? A lot of airline people uh, had other jobs. Like uh, a good friend of ours uh, was a captain, TWA, but before he was a captain, he was laid off for not as long as we were, not at all. But he would build decks on people's houses. He and Bernie eventually, when they retired, would rehab a house and sell it. You know, they had that, those other talents besides sitting in a cockpit. So that came in handy too during a furlough. <laughs> so now I wanted to ask you one thing. Um... Uh, maybe going in, this is actually where I teared up a little bit. So I'm going to be careful because you're not going to get me crying on the camera here. So, so, um, so your, your husband, unfortunately came down with ALS, correct? Mm -hmm. So, um, how did you, how did you, oh, a bunch of questions, I guess, but how did you guys first recognize, um, that that was happening? Uh, what we thought was a bad back and the way he was walking uh, he had a wonderful holistic chiropractor that helped out, but it was a relative of my daughter's who noticed and hadn't seen him in like a, over a year or two. It's hard when you live with somebody and they do this gradually, but she hadn't seen him and she made a remark about his, the way he walked it was very different. So I started looking at it from a, a stranger's point of view. Does this man look like normal? Well, that was the beginning of it. And, um, it's very hard to detect, especially in the beginning. But um, that's what happened. It was just gradually coming on and it was getting the diagnosis. Sometimes it takes almost a year to get a diagnosis because you go from doctor to doctor. I know a gal I taught with died of ALS within two years after she retired. She thought it was a bad back and she had her back operated on and she had all these ideas, but that wasn't it. It has to be a correct diagnosis. Now, for some of our listeners, uh, again, they may be younger. They may not know what ALS is. Um, I think you'd probably do a really good job of explaining that. Uh, it's Well, it's called amyotropic lateral sclerosis. And each word has a meaning in Greek, but it's the gradual, your nerves send uh, a signal to your muscles for everything you do in your body. And when the nerves start, like sclerosis means to shrivel up into nothing, into little things that aren't effective, uh, you, you have no muscle power. You can't hold a pencil. You think, what's wrong with this, you know? Um, and it's, uh, there are different kinds of ALS. Some attack first, the legs and the spine, which was Bernie. Some attack the swallowing, the bulbar it's called, and the upper body. Um, and they have, they have the feeding tube right away and the breathing becomes uh, untenable, so. Um, that's how we knew somebody pointed it out. And then my kids, Paul and Lisa were very reactive and, and they were kind of pushing me. And Lisa said, um, her friend had a sister who was a, a pretty well-known pulmonologist in New York city. And he was having a little breathing problem. So that's where we started, Dr. Adrizzo. And uh, he went with her for a while. And then she recommended he go see Dr. Lang at the hospital of special surgery. He is an expert in ALS. He's traveled around the world giving talks. 
And with that, that clinic, every time we would go into the city, we'd park, we'd have to walk to the hospital. Not only would the doctor see him, but there were five staff people, the physical therapist, occupational therapist. They all took a look at him and had him do these games where you put the blocks in the spaces and that kind of thing to see your coordination. And they kept track of it. So that was uh, wonderful for us until one was uh, established on Long Island by the Pendergast who were wonderful at helping us with ALS Ride for Life. So then we would go to Stony Brook University area and see Talkit for the clinic and the same thing. The doctor would see us and uh, take turns with Bernard. So it was a process. It's a process and your caregivers get, like the military, your caregivers come together through the help of uh, Christine Pendergast. And her husband had it for 28 years. Wow. And he raised millions of dollars. 28 years. I thought that, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, please, but I always thought ALS was like a five-year thing. It is. It is. So 28 uh, years. A small percentage, like 5%, live a a longer life. So he established this clinic on Long Island, and he he started out by riding their um, wheelchairs down to Washington, D.C., to go, you know, to the congressman and so on. But it was really tied to baseball. Then, then they would go in all through Long Island, stop at the schools, give talks, raise money. It became hundreds and, and eventually millions of dollars. And they would go to the stadium. But they wouldn't go to Washington after that. So, so yeah, far, it was great. And so for our younger folks, you know, uh, ALS, you might have also heard it as, I believe, Lou Gehrig's disease, correct? Lou Gehrig, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why the tie into baseball as well. So, um, so, and again, this, the story, and you actually mentioned it too in your response. So the key there, I think the key takeaway is don't be alone. Um, you know, you surrounded yourself with a support structure to help support yourself. Uh, you know, it was a family, it was, um, you know, staff at the hospital. Um, you know, you got involved in the ride for life. Um, you know, you made sure that you always had that support. Your husband always had that support as well. Um, whether it was people that was in his squadron, um, whether it was the telephone operator uh, surprising you with that first call, um, it's always important to make sure you have community. Um, so, you know, so that's so that's kind of um, the story with your husband. I wanted to take a few minutes, if you're okay with it. Um, you had mentioned about your son, um, and I'm, I'm, I was really sorry to hear that uh, your son had passed away. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit about your son. Well, Paul was born, um, when Bernard was in Vietnam, that's the one letter I can't find because I guess I held it close to my heart when he found out, but, uh, he went to Coe college, the same college we went to and graduated. He was a photography and art major, like his son who just graduated from Coe college. Um, and he, uh, told me, I, he worked with a, a famous photographer in the city his senior year. And I said, well, are you going to go into photography? He says, no, mom, you can't make a living at it. So he lived with us for a while, saved his money, uh, joined the, the Air Guard, went to training in um, basic training, I guess, in Texas. And he was a little older than most of the trainees. So he really took to it. So then he bought himself a little cottage near us, a little summer place. And... Um, stayed with the guard 
um, and he was a, went to fire school and became a volunteer fireman in East Quag, New York. He loved that. So then he joined the uh, fire department at the Air Guard, which was very specialized because it's right on the runway there. It's part of the whole group and they know how to put out special fires from different kind of propellants. Um, and they would do the space shuttle. They would guard that. They would go down with the C-130 and the helicopter and were designated because there were only two rescue groups in the States, California and Long Island. So um, he, he really enjoyed it. He, he was very good. And he was so busy with three kids that he gave up the, uh, the local job, the volunteer fireman, and he uh, stuck with the fire department at the guard. Then he retired after 23 years and went with the uh, Suffolk County Water Authority. He was a great dad. He was a wonderful son. He was into um, uh, motorcycles and uh, not the street kind, the kind that did the competitions and all that. So I think he took me riding once. And I asked him, I said, now you have two sons and a daughter, please don't get them involved. Well, his one son, his youngest is a junior in high school now. And he built his own bicycle, his regular bike. He builds ramps. He, he's very talented that way. Uh, he built it from scratch, Paul helped him. But he's not into motorbikes, thank goodness, so. But yeah, it's a great loss for us. And uh, my um, daughter-in-law is remarkable. She's working and the three kids are at home. One's in law school on her computer. One's graduated and has a job on a computer and then the high schooler. So, so they're all together. And without COVID, I just can't whip over there mm -hmm. when I want to. I did go the first week of September because there were two birthdays, but um, yeah, we miss him a lot. We really do. And, uh, but she had support when he went to Iraq and Kuwait. So some of their good friends were, you know, over there too. Mm -hmm. And when they went, they took the guard group as a group to do the firehouse. I believe it was in Kuwait. And I would ask Paul, the Brits were there, they did the food and then his fire department did security. And I said, now you weren't in uh, trouble over there. You weren't in the hot firing part. He'd say, no, 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 that no. So then years later, he somebody said, well, didn't they, they toss missiles over the fence where you, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, he wouldn't admit it. They won't tell their mothers, you know. Yeah, no, mom. I'm staying at the Hilton. <laughs> they give us, yeah. We have we have breakfast in bed, and it's all good. Don't worry about it. Yeah. That's what they say, right? I see a lot of good qualities that he had in his kids, and um, why he married such a, a sweet gal. So I think they'll, they're going to be all right. But it's yeah. just tough at age 53, you know. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that for you. Um, you know, it does. Um, you know, one thing between your son and, and your husband, um, you know, it, again, I don't know anything about either situation, to be honest. Um, but, you know, for your husband with ALS, um, a lot of folks that were pilots that um, were flying back then, they, you know, if they had Agent Orange in the area, they were flying through it with their airplanes. Um, and I yeah. believe the VA considers ALS, um, you know, the Vietnam War as a precondition for ALS for service members. Is it, is it was that true? That, or? Came to, that came to pass while he, um, let's see, within the last 
six or so years of his life because his friend, who he ejected with twice, lived in Florida and he had Parkinson's and lung cancer. And Parkinson's, and I believe, he, is another he one. He went to the VA down there all the time. And he's the one that would call Bernie and say, I hope they make ALS a comp with compensating right. disease or something. So um, they did. Okay. Uh, so he got a little, so he got a little bit more support from the VA that way. He so. did. And they gave him uh, things to help him get out of bed. And yeah, they were pretty good. Okay. And, um, and my daughter spent a lot of time because they live in New Jersey, driving to Long Island a couple hours and being with us. Uh, she was great. And um, towards the end, you know, she, we, we got a, a hotel room near the hospital and then Paul would commute out. So it was great. Um, she's, uh, she's great. I, I love being near them. She adopted twin boys from the hospital when they were just born. She had two oh, wow. teenage daughters. So she's got a 31-year-old daughter with a baby who's a year and a half. And then she has a 28-year-old daughter, and she has twin boys that are six, 15. I didn't catch it. Who Who is this? My daughter. Oh, your daughter. So your daughter, Lisa. Lisa. Okay. And so, so I go to a lot of football games and lacrosse here in New Jersey. I'm learning all that through the through my twin grandsons. Yeah, we love lacrosse. Lacrosse is a big... I came from Rochester, New York, before I moved down to South Carolina. And, um, and Rochester, New York and Buffalo, New York, and it's near Toronto and Canada. And so, uh, lacrosse is like all there is like, we don't even care about football. <laughs> we care about lacrosse. Um, so that's, um, so that's, yeah, you, so that's great. So hopefully what we got to do is we got to get this COVID thing over with so we yeah. can get you back to hanging out with all these grandkids. <laughs> so, um, yeah. for Thanksgiving, we just had that for those folks that are listening, maybe, you know, they, people might listen to this three years later, right? Um, so when we're making this, uh, you know, we're in 2020, we just had Thanksgiving. So how, how did you, um, celebrate Thanksgiving? Did you do it over video chats or? Um, my daughter took, uh, her family down to Cape May and they rented a house for a few days, three days. I opted not to go because I live in a retirement community. It's a continuing care community. I have my own cottage and I have a lot of independence but they have strict COVID rules because it's hit right. New Jersey so badly. Um, she lives in Summit and I live in West Caldwell. It's, 20, it's a half an hour apart. And in November, there were 200 new cases in her little community, Summit, New Jersey. So we have to be very careful. And I said, I, I see you kids. Uh, we, don't, we haven't hugged or kissed since last Christmas, mm -hmm. but we see each other. And uh, I said, I don't want to go down there and rent that with you and sit there and then have to come back and closet myself for two weeks. Right. I just don't think it's worth it. So I, I stayed here and I'm glad I did. I got a lot done with my website, my new website and all that. So cool deal. Cool deal. And wow. I had Thanksgiving with a good friend of mine, a single lady, mm -hmm. and we had our turkey dinners together. So it was very nice. Once again, got to keep that, that, that community around you. Um, yeah. I'll knock on wood, which I'm doing over here. So, uh, you know, hopefully in a couple months, uh, you know, you'll be able to give everybody hugs again and see everybody in person. I hope so. I really miss them. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't have any other questions for you. Um, you know, did you have anything else for us to hear? Well, I'll just say I, I love the Civil Air Patrol. When I was a teacher in Riverhead for 23 years, Riverhead, New York, and uh, Patty McCauley, who was head of computers, she and her husband ran the CAP 
And I had never heard of it before. This was in the early 80s. And I, through our friendship, I got to know some of the things they did. Of course, Grumman was there on Long Island and they had the Cradle of Aviation Museum. So it's a, a perfect place. And all the little airports on Long Island, they have wonderful uh, shows. You know, they bring in the old airplanes. And so, um, but that's just what I would like to say. That well, I, I, I think that. what you're doing is great. And I wish more young students would, would take to that because there's, with this new whole space agency, I mean, it's yeah, just space opening Force. up so beautifully. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to learn. So. Well, I appreciate that. And I know a lot of our listeners are going to be CAP. Um, and so, so for those of you that are interested, um, I hope that many of you are again, uh, Sarah Jane, thank you for your time, um, in the show. If you're listening to this on a podcast, um, in the show notes, you will find links to the book, my pilot, uh, a story of war, love and ALS. Uh, if you are watching this on YouTube, you can just scroll down to, um, to the comments section and the description and you'll find uh, the same links there. Um, Sarah Jane, I just wanted to say thanks again for your time. Um, your, your, your story again, uh, isn't the typical that I would do because you're not a pilot and, you know, flying and telling us all these harrowing stories of how you went into a thunderstorm and almost crashed into a mountain or something. Um, but your story was really touching and I, I do think it was, it's so, it's, it's honestly, it's really important, um, you know, for folks that are going to have loved ones, um, whether they're a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife. Um, I think, I think your story is really important. And so I hope folks will check out your book. Um, and again, if they have a, a family member, a loved one or a friend that's going to be uh, going through that as well, um, you know, pick up this copy and, uh, and, and hand it to them. I think it's something that they could really, um, you know, engage with you, you know, over your, your written words. Um, so with that, Sarah Jane, I want to thank you very much. And, um, you know, if I don't talk to you, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. You too, Sarah Jane. I'll talk to you All soon. All the listeners. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Um, all right. That was our discussion with uh, Sarah Jane. Um, if you want to, you know, connect, I have Sarah Jane's email. I'm not going to give it to all of you weird people out there on the internet. Um, but you know, I thought one of the things I think it'd be nice is on Twitter. Um, you know, we, we have our Twitter, which is aerospace underscore live. If you wanted to send a note or uh, a comment to Sarah Jane, you can put it in Twitter. And if you just do the at aerospace underscore live space, and then a message, um, and put Sarah Jane's name in it. Um, I'll tell you what, I don't do this for other, I don't do this for other guests. Uh, I don't think I've ever done this for anybody else, but, um, I actually, I have not done this for anybody else. So if you put Sarah Jane in the tweet, um, I will, uh, you know, through the month of December, uh, as, as a promise, I will make sure that Sarah Jane gets an email with all of your comments. Um, so that she gets a chance to see those. Um, okay. With that, I think we are done. I hope you all have a great day and we will talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye everyone.